Listening to Feminist Current, I'm Megan Murphy. The sexual revolution is generally understood to have been liberating for women. We could now enjoy sex free from social consequences as well as outside the context of marriage and reproduction. Women are no longer required to get married or to have children if they don't want to. They can, in theory anyway, have sex like men. This is what we were told in any case. But is this a good thing? Louise Perry doesn't think so. Her book, The Case Against the Sexual Revolution, asks whether all of this liberation was actually, well, liberating for women. These are questions I, too, have been thinking about for some time. In this episode, I speak with her about hookup culture, pornography, marriage, casual sex, and the pill. Louise Perry is a new mother, a columnist at New Statesman, and the press officer for the campaign group We Can't Consent to This. Her book is available now in the UK and scheduled to be released in the US in September. Thanks for making the time to talk with me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. I'm a, I'm a long-time feminist current listener, so. <laughs> so, first of all, con- congrats on the book. It's very Thank good, so and much. I know that uh, writing a book is trying, so good for you. <laughs> True. <laughs> um, I'm curious to know, how long how long did you spend on this book? Well, I mean, it's sort of been writing it in my head for a long time, um, and I, to some extent, um, built the book off um, journalism that I've been producing for the last sort of four or five years. Um, I actually wrote it though basically between um, my third month of pregnancy and when my son turned six months, um, which is not a schedule I would recommend to anyone <laughs> who's thinking of um, writing a book and having a baby at the same time. Yeah, I um, can't imagine. <laughs> but it was uh, it was motivating, um, wanting to get it done before the baby arrived, and then not quite managing it, and so finishing it later on. But um, uh, yeah, so it was sort of I guess uh, twelve months. Right. I'm interested in I'm interested in your political trajectory. Mm. Um, you started out as what would be called a liberal feminist, although I find that to be an imperfect term. Mm. Um, what changed your mind? You know, what happened to make you start questioning your your own feminist views? I was never a really hardcore liberal feminist. Um, like I, I never, for instance, um, the idea of sex work being work never really sat right with me, um, even though that's such a core sort of idea within liberal feminism. Um, but I suppose as a, as a teenager and, um, initially as an undergraduate, it was just sort of the standard view, right? Um, and like most teenagers, I was just conformed with my, uh, in-group, which in my case is, um, you know, middle-class London professional graduates, um, among whom 
the what I describe in the book as sexual disenchantment, um, by which I mean the idea that sex doesn't really mean anything. It's like it's it's a leisure activity, basically. It doesn't it's not invested with anything more sort of important than that. Um, which therefore means, you know, of course you can you can commodify it in any way you like. Uh you can um enjoy porn or casual sex or whatever as just a kind of hobby like any other um that is a very sort of a very a very strange i think but a very strong idea that comes out of the sexual revolution and which has been readily embraced by a lot of people including by my my peers growing up so um it was when i was an undergraduate that i started to read a lot more radical feminism including on feminist current and um uh i mean it was mostly the 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 trans issue that first kind of was my was my crossing rubicon moment um because it was just so i just saw it as so patently absurd and then it, it, it i think i think there is often this experience right where once you've started to question one plank of the of the dominant narrative the rest of it falls away pretty quickly um but then I think that my, I mean, I'm still, I still have a lot of friends who are radical feminists. There are still aspects of, I still have pretty much the same sort of policy proposals as radical feminists. I support the Nordic model. I think that um, porn industry should be heavily regulated, if not outright banned. Um, I, uh, I'm, you know, I've, I've pretty much devoted my professional life, all of my professional life to um, working against violence against women. When my first um, job when I left university was working in a rape crisis centre, and then um, and then I became a journalist and have written a lot about violence against women. And I'm I also work on the We Can't Consent to This campaign, um, which uh, is concerned with rough sex cases, cases where men have killed women and have claimed that they died as a result of consensual rough sex. So, you know, this is all, I'm, I'm, I'm very much in the same uh, kind of space as a lot of radical feminists. But I've ended up reaching some different conclusions on a more theoretical level, um, which I lay out in the book. The, but the most important of which is that I don't believe in the blank slate theory of gender anymore. I don't think that all of the differences in behavior and personality and so on that we see between men and women on average are a result of um, socialization. I think that there is a, there is, there is, there is biology there too. I think that evolutionary psychology explains, can explain a, a lot of what we see in terms of the consistent differences between men and women that we see across cultures. And I think, you know, and that does kind of, <clears throat> On that point, I do depart from radical feminism, um, and it also leads me to some extent to depart from some other um, feminist ideas, the most controversial of which probably is that I think that marriage is a good thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, I ha- and I have a chapter that says as much. Mm-hmm. I noticed. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, I think we. it sounds like we've had a similar trajectory in terms of our feminist thinking um Mm. i mean i never was a particularly liberal feminist i found radical feminism quite 
early on in my development, you know, when I was around probably 19, maybe even mm. a, bit, a bit earlier. I was about that. 20 mm. and 21, so yeah, similar. Yeah. And, but I, I mean, one of the things that I have reflected back on a lot, which you write about in the book, is this idea that I learned when I was a young woman. You know, I grew up in the 90s, so during third wave feminism's heyday, which continued on for, you know, well, it's still, I think that we're still in the third wave, um, which is that sex is just sex and that it is detached or it can be detached from emotion. um, And it's just, it can just be a physical thing and nothing more. And that women should strive to have sex like men and we can have sex Mm -hmm. like men. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I struggled to, to do that when I was a young woman. And eventually, you know, probably when I was in my thirties, um, I started to realize that this was not true and it wasn't a good thing. Mm. Mm. I wonder where you, you know, when you started to think more critically about this idea, you know, it's just sex or, you know, we can have emotionless sex or how, how can we teach ourselves to avoid catching feelings as you, you wrote in the book? Mm. Yeah. I mean, I think I, I think I realized about myself, um, that that was not for me um at about the same time I suppose that I discovered radical feminism um but I but I didn't at the time interpret that as anything to do with sort of um biology or anything really innate about female sexuality except to the extent I suppose that obviously there are physical risks and burdens that women suffer from from heterosexual sex uh men don't in terms of things like pregnancy risk and also um, are being smaller in stature and, and less physically strong than men means that we're always the more vulnerable party in any heterosexual encounter. Um, but I didn't, I think, I would, in, in the kind of radical feminist framework, um, the way that one might interpret the, the kind of downsides for casual sex for women has more to do with the idea that um, there's this power imbalance inherently between men and women, um, which means that our sexual encounters are always going to be kind of weighed in an unfair way against women, which, I mean, I think is true. Um, I think the sexual asymmetry thing is... is, is profoundly important when it comes to this, and it's why the whole having sex like a man project is is doomed to failure <laughs> um, because we, we can't have sex like men for a host of reasons. And and those do include psychological reasons. You know, there are outliers, right? There are, there do seem to be women who, who sincerely um, enjoy casual sex, seek it out, can have sex without catching feelings. I mean, it's worth noting that quite often women who feel this way report um, history of sexual trauma 
which is you know clearly relevant but that you know i i, I do accept in theory that the, the nature of bell curves is that they have long tails and some people will be very unusual for their sexes but i think it's also clearly the case that there is a big population difference between men and women and you know the whole catching feelings um idea which you see represented often in women's media um as a gender neutral one i have a bit in the book where i talk about um the idea of being a um a demisexuality mm. and other variations on that phrase the idea that there are some people who for some you know innate reason to do with their very special identities don't really like casual sex um or equally you know that there are that that one ought to work on catching feelings that there are you know methods you can use to try and um enjoy hookup culture more often etc etc and this is all represented as being gender neutral in these articles that anyone of any sex might have any gender excuse me might have um you know difficulties attaching emotion from sex and anyone might identify as demisexual etc etc but no this is not a gender neutral issue <laughs> it's clearly the case it's what's going on here is that it is primarily women who are you know basically emotionally mutilating themselves in the service of hookup culture and it's overwhelmingly to the benefit of men and i think that representing that as in any way feminist as third wave feminism has attempted to is an almighty con basically <laughs> although not a conspiracy i don't think that this has been you know whatever's going on in like the editorial offices of cosmo um i don't think this has been designed by anyone i think it's i think it's a I think it's you know fundamentally a consequence of the pill and other technological changes of the 20th century and 21st, including the internet. And it's a it's a it's a culture thing, you know, not a conspiracy. No one's designed it this way, but this is how we've ended up. And I think that we have a false narrative has kind of um, congealed around it. And my project is to try and challenge that narrative in the book. Yeah, I mean, it seems like it's uh, about a number of <clears throat> cultural and, and political factors that have come together, um, including, you know, changes in, you know, technological innovation. Um, you know, today, we hear a lot about what's called hookup culture. And and I, I mean, it seems to me that a lot of what's happened in terms of what men expect and what women expect is a consequence of dating apps and pornography. Um, you know, mm. I think, I think women feel as though they need to perform pornography in every single dating scenario and certainly it seems as though they feel that they need to pretend that they don't care indefinitely mm. when they're dating um mm. you know they they're using these apps where men men treat these apps in many ways as they do pornography you know it's visual stimulation and it's it's a turn on, it's potentially, you know, masturbation material because they'll expect or ask for or receive nudes. They're swiping through photos of attractive young women. Um, I mean, 
how much do you how much have you found that has factored into what young women are experiencing in in heterosexual relationships today oh vastly and i think unmistakably i mean there's this there's long running um discussion among um research and so forth about the impact that porn has on people's behavior um because there is a a long-standing assumption among some that a porn doesn't you know it's just entertainment it doesn't really impact on how people behave in the same way that say watching the comparison that's made is with um violent films or video games which don't seem to have an appreciable effect on the the, the, the viewers propensity to actually commit violent crime um and so the assumption has been that porn is is much the same it's just a kind of neutral form of entertainment i think that it's becoming clear that that is not the case uh, i mean porn has a slightly perverse effect on viewers um it seems to reduce particularly really compulsive male porn users um have less sex generally um and in fact actually often made impotent by the amount of porn that they use because um, they become so deadened to real life sexual stimulation and and real people um, that they like literally can't get it up. So so sometimes porn has that effect on its users. But I think one of the really um, the work we've done with we can't consent to this, um, which is just a UK, UK based campaign, but this is a phenomenon worldwide, including in North America. Um, I think has really demonstrated that. No, porn is making a difference because I'm, I mean, on several levels, one in the sense that this whole phenomenon of courts and police and journalists believing the idea that women will readily seek out um, potentially lethal violence because it turns them on. You know, this is this is not something that any of those bodies were accepting. I mean, they would, you know, it, the, the comparison is to. Um, old defences to domestic violence around nagging and shagging, so-called, um, where where courts and police and so forth would readily believe that women had um, provoked lethal violence from their partners by being annoying or unfaithful, and this was just kind of accepted, and that was expressive, right, of a culture that didn't take domestic violence seriously. And, and nagging and shagging defences, I mean, we still have a lamentable record on on domestic violence convictions but nagging and shagging defenses are no longer a sort of respectable defense whereas the rough sex defense has kind of replaced replaced that um and it is now in some instances laughably easy for defendants to um convince people that often really really grotesque violence um was just a result of a sex game gone wrong and um fiona mckenzie who founded who founded our campaign, she um, she sat down and documented how many cases like this there had been and found that there had been um, a really obvious uptick around the turn of the millennium. And not only had there been more defendants making this kind of defence, but they'd also been meeting with success more often, so often getting really light sentences or avoiding murder convictions and, and just receiving manslaughter convictions and short sentences and so on sometimes like a few years you know for like horrific injuries um 
And then also at the same time, we've seen, you know, exactly the same time period, we've seen the really rapid normalization of all sorts of violent acts during sex or degrading acts during sex, choking or strangulation being the most um, obvious and also I think the most troubling because most people, most lay people have no idea quite how fragile the neck is. Um, it's difficult to it's difficult to kill someone accidentally through strangulation because it does it, like it requires you to apply force for um, several minutes at least, which is not something you can do frivolously. I mean, you try like gripping your own wrist for five minutes hard and see how long that feels. You know, it's so the the the, the defendants who are claiming that this was just a kind of slip of the wrist that resulted in them, you know murdering a woman in prostitution or murdering their partner who you know surprise surprise they had been um reportedly abusing for years you know prior to her death right so those kind of narratives that defendants try to spin are not are not plausible but it is clearly the case that um strangulation can result in all sorts of injuries including um miscarriage stroke um uh temporary paralysis all sorts of neurological injuries which i think most people most lay people have no idea about and you and you and you will read in magazines men's health whatever about how you how encouraging people to try to try breath play because it's the the sexy new thing and choking content is on the front page of every porn platform worldwide and also very often on social media which is supposedly suitable for 13 plus so instagram whatever it's easy easy to come across this stuff often accidentally and this was this was not normal you know even 10 years ago 20 years ago like choking was a niche within a niche and it wasn't it, it wasn't something you would ever come across accidentally it wasn't considered to be like a standard thing that you would do even in a casual encounter um and we were involved in a uh, research a couple of years ago commissioned by the BBC which found incredibly high rates of um, British women reporting having been choked by their partners or being slapped by their partners or spat on um, having their hair pulled um, very often without consent without even any prior warning um, you know sometimes with consent but very often not and what was really striking, I thought about this data, is the age skew that you saw the young cohorts. This didn't even go below 20, so we don't even know what teenagers are doing, according to this data. But the youngest cohort, it was so much more common than in the oldest cohort. Um, and you know, you look at all of these, you look at all these trends, the normalization of um, violence and degradation during sex, and you look at what has appeared on in everyone's phones. And in everyone's laptops in that period, the fact that we've got this multi-billion pound industry that's like beaming violent content into the smartphone of every teenager. And I just I don't think it's plausible anymore to try and claim that this isn't having an impact on people's sexual preferences and on the sexual culture at large. Um, I think like, yeah, the results are in and porn absolutely does corrupt people's sexuality. Yeah, and I mean, I think anyone who's seen pornography, which I think would probably be everyone at this point because it's so unavoidable, you know, 
as you point out, it's on Instagram, it's on Twitter. Um, it's, I don't think you can go online and not see pornography at some point. So, I mean, even if you're not seeking out porn, you're going to be exposed. And, you know, it's, it's obvious to me that the things that men are doing and saying in bed are things that they've learned directly from pornography. Um, you know, even it's the normalization of BDSM practices, which, you know, could be tied to this, this choking phenomenon as well. But what was once was sort of like a niche kink. It seems that women are being taught that this is something they should try out and incorporate into their sex lives. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I read something on Reddit recently. Um, There's some thread on like a big subreddit about um, what impact has porn had on your life. And one of the top rated comments was um, a Swedish guy commenting that he and his also Swedish girlfriend who are Swedish speakers will like use English phrases during sex Mm. because they've both learned it from porn like porn has just had such an such an impact on their sexuality that like they will literally like these are the phrases that come to mind on orgasm um which I thought was a very like uh, telling example of quite how influential this this stuff is. I think I think just to view it as mutual entertainment, and that you can kind of draw a bright line between your sexual fantasy life and the rest of your life, is I think not coherent. Because I mean, one we have all this evidence that it has an, an impact on people, but also it's just. The nature of the product is, I think, intrinsically really different from watching films or whatever because it is, um, because the whole point of the product is that it induces sexual arousal, right? Like that's what porn is designed to do. And platforms like Pornhub have got very, very adept at doing that so that you, um, if you go onto any of these sites, you are you are basically aroused as quickly as possible um, by everything. Like everything is is perfectly refined to induce arousal in the human body, um, from the thumbnails, which all show the most explicit moments <clears throat> of of a film. Um, sometimes audio that will play like a, a, automatically when you when you arrive on a platform, um, and it's all stu- super stimuli, right? Like it's 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 so much more HD amplified than anything you'd actually experience in a real sexual relationship. And of course the, 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 the platforms are designed to, to draw you in, to encourage you to keep clicking. And what is often reported anecdotally is that compulsive porn users, most of whom are men, some of whom are also women, will become deadened to more vanilla content the more they use it and will end up seeking out more intense um, more intense stimuli in order to get the same hit in a kind of it is it's comparable to um, 
drug desensitization in that sense, which will sometimes lead them down the BDSM path because BDSM is obviously designed to be kind of shocking and super and, and super stimulating. Um, or, I mean, what we're hearing, I think, more and more from people who treat um, child sex offenders, like clinical psychologists, for instance, is that they used to exclusively be seeing men who were sort of true paedophiles, so to speak, who were like resolutely their their sexual orientation was only towards children, um, would be the, 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 the men who were caught with child sexual abuse images. But increasingly now they're seeing a lot of men who actually have kind of ended up there as a culmination of their porn addiction because it's led them into darker and darker parts of the internet and the and the nature of using porn is that the 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 dopamine feedback loop which we're all familiar with from social media or whatever is is reinforced by orgasm which makes it that much more powerful and that much more addictive so i think that we're you know we're dealing here with a really sinister new tech product and i think obviously i I um, I share the feminist belief that the, the primary victims of porn are um, women, particularly the women who, who who are actually featured in it, but also down the track, you know, the women who are being non-consensually strangled by their sex partners or whatever. But I think also that in a sense the men are the victims too, in that they are being manipulated often to the point of, you know, misery and impotence by these platforms that have absolutely no interest in their users' well-being. And really the only people who are winning from this are the, the owners of these platforms who are making profit. I think otherwise they just have an incredibly destructive effect on society. Yeah, I think so too. And, I mean, it's it's interesting. I mean, I've been writing critically and speaking critically about porn for about a decade now and the most common criticism I've received or retort or disagreement from both men and women um, is well you know some women like it you know so Mm, if I'm talking to a man who is a porn advocate or is a man who wants to continue using porn without feeling bad about it he'll say well you know, some girls like it. Some of those girls in, in porn like it. You know, the some of the girls that I'm having sex with, they like it. They ask for it. Um, and when I'm talking to some women about it, they'll say the same thing. Or, oh, I like it. I like it. And it's hard to respond to that because you can't really tell someone what they like or don't like or tell them that what they like is wrong. Um but I I mean, I wonder if you've encountered that response and how you respond to those kinds of arguments. Yeah, all the time and often followed up as well with the suggestion that I, I am somehow um, prudish, whatever. I don't know if people outside of Britain have ever heard of Mary Whitehouse. Um, she I was haven't a, until um, your book. <laughs> yeah, she's a um, a very prominent figure in the latter half of the 20th century. She's kind of a crusader against the sexual revolution and um, 
and a conservative Christian and I get photos of Mary Whitehouse put next to my photo in like most <laughs> most newspaper <laughs> coverage of my of my work mm-hmm. um even though I have all sorts of profound differences with Mary Whitehouse I do make a partial defense of her in the book because I think she was really prescient about some things um particularly about Charles Exabuse but uh yeah yeah the um some women like it who are you to say otherwise kind of point um I don't care um <laughs> some women like it I say look the you know the it is so fantastically unethical the entire industry like it's it, it's like saying that you well I just love my t-shirts made with like slave labor I'm like I don't care if you do <laughs> it just doesn't it just doesn't it just doesn't matter I mean you can delve as well as into you know clearly um our desires, yes, they are partially um, derived from biology, but they're also clearly subject to context, right? Like no one, all the young people who are now considered choking to be flavour of the month, they didn't all wake up at the same moment and decide this simultaneously, right? This was not considered normal a generation or two ago. This is, you know, it's it's an elaboration on a theme to do with male dominance and female submission, which is a very common, um, you know, a very common theme in all sorts of sexual fantasies for both and, and like, um, what's the word, sexual fiction for both male and female audiences. So I don't think that that's come out of nowhere. Um, but this particular manifestation of it is particularly extreme, particularly grotesque. It's, it's weird, actually, how BDSM has come, has become really voguish at exactly the same time that all of the, um, you know, gender fluidity and attempts to kind of erase the differences between masculinity and femininity, or even between males and femaleness, have become also really voguish. Um, and it's funny because BDSM is kind of like a it's like a monstrous exaggeration of masculinity and femininity um, in a really dysfunctional way and and with any positive aspects removed. Um, But, you know, clearly this is happening within context. Clearly, to some extent, um, women are competing with one another to to be ostentatiously sexually adventurous. You know, when when women are going online um, and boasting about their kinks or when you've got teenage girls like showing their neck bruises on TikTok and all these kind of uh, disturbing online trends. This is because they associate being really up for it and being, um, you know, kind of edgy in their sexuality as being high status. And it's all about displaying their kind of... um, their attractiveness to men and their willingness to please men. Um, and so I don't want to entirely dismiss it as entirely a product of false consciousness. I think that's, I think that's too crude, but it's also needs to be understood within an incentive structure. Right. And it's interesting to me that we've seen this flip from the pre 1960s, status quo where the what women can young women in particular competed with each other over was demonstrating their chastity right and um, and 
and not definitely having sex before marriage and and being kind of purer than pure like that was the source of competition and now it's flipped and you have girls showing off their neck bruises I mean, the, the thing to remember here, and this is also relevant to things like rapid onset gender dysphoria, is that teenage girls are really, really hypersensitive to status. I mean, all humans are, right? But the teenage girls particularly so. And so if you, if, if, if these girls are introduced to a, um, a status hierarchy where being really into BDSM and like doing a really good job of imitating porn for your male partners is considered high status. Of course, they're going to compete with one another. And of course, it's going to be kind of difficult to, to, to personally disentangle the extent to which um, you're doing this because it's culturally conditioned versus it's any kind of like native interest. Um, so, yeah, that's oh, yeah, <laughs> a question. I mean, <laughs> and it's, it's not as though I think that women should be making their sex and sexual relationships and sexual pleasure about politics, but I do think that, I mean, women, women seem to believe they're very, very empowered nowadays, certainly far more than women were in the 50s and 60s. But at the same time, to me, it seems as though in some ways they have a lot less power and a lot less choice, um, especially, again, in terms of how we look at modern dating practices and whether or not women, young women in particular, are benefiting from things like casual sex and hookup culture and dating apps. I, I, no, I don't think they are at all. I think that the only group of people who benefit from that kind of culture are um, high-status men. Low-status men aren't even benefiting, really, because they don't get any of the action um, because of this sort of widely observed thing on dating apps and so on where um, the most attractive men get a lot of matches and the, the sort of bottom 80%-ish of, of men in terms of attractiveness uh, get none and um, but then you end up with women kind of um having these miserable loveless encounters with these attractive guys who basically don't care if they get hit by a bus next week and this is all presented as as having sex like a man and a route to women's impact. and i mean the, the the response that i get sometimes as well isn't it a choice you know, isn't it fine for someone to want to participate in this kind of culture and some women don't and sort of whatever. And the problem with that is that, yes, clearly it is in the end a choice. We do all have free will. We can say no. But it's a choice that comes with serious penalties. You know, if you're not willing, if you're, if you're, say, a young woman who doesn't want to have sex on a first date or longer, you know, who wants to um, not have sex with a partner for, for a long time, um, into the relationship and you're competing against and you're and you're in a casual sex culture and you're competing with women who are willing to do that um, of course you're going to be at a disadvantage because um, you know men are on average hornier and, and more desirous of sexual variety than women are and the whole casual sex culture is really set up to suit male preferences far more than it does female 
so I think just seeing this as a matter of choice really neglects the networked effect of sex. Like the nature of it is it is fundamentally relational. You have sex with other people. We're all dependent on other people's decision making and preferences. Um and we've seen, you know, a very rapid change in the sexual culture within living memory. And I think often the the nineteen fifties it's funny that the 1950s is the decade that everyone always talks about. Back to the 1950s, right? It's the sort of dread phrase. Um, I think that the 1950s gets... Um, the history gets weaponized, right? The, the progressive narrative, which which is like constantly reminding us of how bad things were in the past. You know, like accurately, often, but also... In a, in a highly politicized way, um, as a means of kind of um, soothing any feelings of unhappiness that women in particular might have about the current sexual culture by saying, oh, but, you know, you wouldn't want to go back, would you? As if this is kind of a strict linear process and those are the only options. Um, I think that there are ways in which women are, better off than they were in the 1950s or before but it's not not in every way by any means and I think actually that the pressure on women that the pressure that women used to experience to be to be chased to be perfect housewives you know all this kind of stuff that you can easily see in 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 media of the period I think that that pressure still exists it's just that the ideal is different you know if the if if the pressure in the past was to like make a perfect meatloaf, the pressure now is to do anal. It's like it's not like there's a, 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 a any kind of relief from the pressure for women to please men. It's just it's just changed, and I think that the new ideal is not any better, and actually could could very likely be worse. Right. I yeah. I agree that it's. It's very odd that people talk about this in such a binary way, um, as though we have to choose either porn culture or a return to the kitchen, as it were. <laughs> mm. um, I I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about the impact of the pill. Um, you know, criticizing the pill is a real feminist no-no um those of us who have done it um you know holly griggs ball wrote a, a very critical book about the pill a few years ago um and was viciously attacked by all mainstream liberal feminists um and you know there's there's more than one way that we can look critically at the pill and the impact of the pill. And you mentioned it in the context of the sexual revolution and how that changed. I wonder if you can talk a bit more about that. So I think that the pill is kind of the key technological, the technology shock, um, which leads to all of the historical change that we've seen. 
obviously in concert with some other material changes as well. I mean, I, I'm fundamentally very skeptical about the idea that ideology is the thing that drives history. I'm, I'm a Marxist in that sense. I think that actually material circumstances drive ideology. And yeah, I mean, there have been periods obviously throughout history where, um, sexual mores have changed and there's often a little bit of a roller cycle. Um, roller coaster effects where you see periods of licentiousness followed by periods of prudishness and so on uh but it's never stuck in the way that this sexual revolution has and has never you know you you have periods right where you have ex- really eccentric women maybe having um having more casual sex in some circumstances or you definitely have periods where things like prostitution is more socially acceptable than at other periods. Um, but what's very odd and what we have now is kind of this being the norm for all women, um, not just women who've, who found themselves in the prostituted class. And I think that that's a consequence of the, of, of the pill. You know, the fact that for the first time in the history of humanity, it becomes possible for women to suspend their fertility. Um, and to take charge of that as well. It's not like a condom, which which men have control over, right? It's a kind of invisible and reliable um, means of contraception that women can control. It's not that reliable, interestingly. I mean, with perfect use, the pill is about 99% effective, but with typical use, it's more like 91%, which isn't actually that good. Um, and even though we now have new forms of hormonal perception like the IUD the pill does remain the most perception um and it causes all sorts of devastating side effects for a lot of its users which have never really been sufficiently researched so it like it comes with a um it clearly comes with a heavy cost to users and it also um I think that it is clearly a good thing for women to be able to control their family size or to not have children if they don't want to. You know, I think there are all sorts of really good reasons not not to want to have children. And, um, you know, it, it clearly was the case that um, despite efforts at things like um, the rhythm method, women spent a lot of their lives pregnant and a lot of their lives postpartum and suffering all of the um, the physical toil associated with that so I, I think that it's a really good thing that that this is not the lives we're consigned to now and one of the effects of that as well is that we're now much more able to participate in public life because we're not spending our whole adult lives pregnant or looking after infants so I think that in that sense it's a miracle but also it has had very very profound effects on relationships between the sexes and i think that the 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 key the key harm of it which i i'm like really focused on in the book is that it allows men to regard sex as being consequence free but sex is not consequence free like sex still you know if 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 100 women are taking the pill in any given year typical use suggests that nine of them will get pregnant which is a lot right and from the male perspective that's not their problem right it's now perfectly socially acceptable for a man to not want to have anything to do with 
children that he's fathered. In the UK, it's about, I think, about two-thirds of um, men who are expected to pay child support payments are not paying them in full, and there's basically no consequences for that from the state. Um, it's completely routine for women to expect to be abandoned by men who impregnate them, particularly if it's during a kind of uh, a casual encounter, or women have to go through an abortion, you know, regardless of what you think of the um, moral status of the fetus, an abortion is not something that you would wish on your worst enemy, right? It's painful, it's unpleasant, it's often um, emotionally very upsetting. Even, you know, whatever you think of the moral status, it clearly is the case that women do not enjoy getting abortions. They're not, it's not, it's not a trivial thing to go through. And I think that, you know, all of this is is in the service of a culture which is determined to think that sex is just a leisure activity and that it's just a meaningless hobby and all of and that pretense basically relies on on women going through a lot of um physical and emotional pain to up to 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 like uphold that that false image and i really don't think it's to women's benefit at all right and I mean, clearly sex can be a leisure activity. You know, human beings enjoy sex and can have sex for fun. And we're not arguing that women should only be having sex for the purposes of reproduction or that women Mm -hmm. and men should only be having sex for the purposes of reproduction. But at the same time, you know, there are differences between men and women in terms of their relationship to sex sexual desire and sexual behavior, um, which factors into this, um, you know, feminism has really rejected the idea that evolution has had an impact on so-called gender differences or sexual differences, whatever you want to call them, you know, male and female behaviors, um, desires, preferences, but, you know, in in your research and uh, uh, you've written about in, in your book that it's not it's not really going to be very common for women to want to perpetually have casual sex and not just because of the fear of getting pregnant. You know, um, I haven't worried about pregnancy in some time. I, you know, I've birth control methods that work for me but nonetheless I don't want to perpetually have casual sex it's not satisfying it's not what I desire um and yeah I wonder if you can talk a bit about those differences in terms of uh evolutionary biology or evolutionary psychology um I think it makes perfect sense that women would have this preference when you recognize the fact that sex is a lot more consequential for women in a world without birth control, which in historical terms is um, like our entire species history up until five minutes ago. And because clearly it's the case that women, you know, men in theory can consire almost like infinite um children because it's just 
you know, the time it takes to orgasm is all it requires of them. Whereas women can only reproduce max once a year. And pregnancy is very long. It demands a lot of calories. It um, makes you weak and sick. It can essentially kill you. Labor, ditto. Um, And then you have many, many years of laborious work of looking after looking after a child or you face some very grim options infanticide or um an attempt at an abortion remembering that up until recently abortion was an inherently dangerous thing to attempt um because there wasn't the sophisticated medical technology that we have now so you know when you look at it in those terms of course you would have expected women to psychologically be um evolved to be very picky about who they have sex with this is one of the reasons why prostitution is as distressing as it is it's not just because the um inherent violence and abuse within the sex trade although that's obviously very very profound it's also because women are evolved to really really care about who they have sex with to be very choosy. I mean, there's all sorts of um, research demonstrating the fact that women are very, very selective about who they want to have sex with, much more so than men are. Um, And prostitution removes that choice. You know, women are obliged to suppress their instinct to select their partners, um, which is almost universally described by women who've experienced it as really, really distressing and normally necessitating some sort of like dissociation um, from the physical disgust and um, and distress. So I think that actually I completely understand the instinct towards the feminine instinct, instincts towards rejecting things like evolutionary psychology, like there are clearly very um anti-woman manifestations of it and it is sometimes very much misused there's you know there are versions of evolutionary psychology that are really just so stories that can pretty much be 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 used to prove any any sort of defense of the status quo you like but i think the problem with rejecting the discipline entirely is it's just a scientific discipline. It doesn't have, you know, the, the scientific data doesn't have any moral value in and of itself. If, if it's true, it's true, right? And we kind of have to just deal with it. Um, and I think actually there are ways in which you can you can use this research to feminist ends um, if, if used wisely. You know, I don't think that there is anything inherently wrong or... I don't know, there's always this idea within liberal feminism, but but sometimes within radical feminism too, that there's something sort of embarrassing about the idea of women having, um, of women being different from men, that it's something that we, we have to deny. Um, even though I think that, I mean, it's, it's a, it is just an it is just a neutral fact. You know, if female sexuality is different from male sexuality, that doesn't mean that it is necessarily inferior um, by any means. I think it's just it's just it's just there. And I and and what I'm what I'm trying to do in the 
in the book is kind of reckon with that. Say, okay, if we if we are prepared to accept that there are there are these differences, yes, there are outliers, but at the population level, there are there are some profound differences. If we can accept that, where do we go next? Because I don't think we can eradicate them, and I think that the efforts to, for instance, encourage women to have sex like men, which is the you know the liberal feminist project, have failed utterly. And I don't think that just the the the, the response from liberal feminists who who observe the problems with sexual culture, which like you know mostly do, I don't think anyone thinks that everything is peachy, um, but their general explanation for this is that we haven't been liberated enough. You know, we need to just apply more liberation. We need to tear down the old sexual norms even more than they have been torn down already. Um, I think that that. I think that that project is always going to fail because of the existence of sexual asymmetry, because of the fact that we have these the, these, these physical imbalances between sexes, but even more so the fact that we have imbalances in terms of our preferences. And I don't think that just liberating everyone, right, and removing any of the structures or social guardrails that could ameliorate those differences and protect women, like chivalry, for instance, right? I don't think that chivalry is bad for women. Even if sometimes its manifestations might seem patronizing or unwelcome or whatever, I, I think that if like the core idea of chivalry is that men have great power and therefore have great responsibility on a, in a physical sense, just the fact that they're big and strong and so forth, um, why on earth would we want to discard a social system which insists that men have like responsibilities to restrain their dark, darkest urges, right? <laughs> that seems like extremely unwise to or throw to, that out the window yeah or even to protect women i mean the reality yeah. is that men are bigger and stronger than women and that there are scenarios wherein men can and arguably should protect women from danger whether that danger is another man which most often it would be or mm. you know if you're protecting her from a lion <laughs> Yeah, yeah, we, I mean, yes, I think that our only, I think in practical terms, our counter to bad men is good men. And that is basically what a system of chivalry demands. And yeah, I think that the idea of, of, of liberation across the board can't reckon with the fact that, um, the phrase I, the quote that I use in the book is, um, freedom for the pike is death for the minnows when it's when we're in an un, you know an unbalanced state of affairs where there are the, these 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 inherent power imbalances which don't just come down to patriarchal socialization you know they come right down to the to the to like the biological bedrock um yeah freeing everyone necess, necessitates freeing um exploiters to further exploit like we understand this when it comes to something like the free market we know that if you um you know deregulate the labor market it's not going to result in everyone being happier <laughs> right mm. it's, it's much more likely to result any anyone with a critique of capitalism is going to recognize this much more likely to result in workers being exploited by bosses right because the playing field is not an even one and i think that that's that's also true in the, the the sexual marketplace, and that's why just prescribing more liberation is not going to 
cure what ails us. And and speaking of those social guardrails, as you mentioned earlier, you have a chapter in your book called Marriage Marriage is Good. Marriage is Marriage is Good, yeah. Um which is a very controversial thing to say <laughs> yes. in feminism, you know. Um radical feminists in particular have have long rejected marriage. I um for most of my life rejected marriage not just for myself but as an institution um mm. and i've started to come around to a different view of marriage of late but i think it's interesting to talk about the ways that marriage can be a good thing for women i mean marriage can be and has been very bad for women in a number of ways um mm. especially when it has meant that women have no autonomy and are entirely dependent on their husband um for you know access to the public sphere to the political sphere and access to any sort of financial um, well, it wouldn't be financial freedom, but access to money, <laughs> access mm. to survival. Mm. So I wonder if you can talk about why you think that marriage is actually a good thing for society, for women. Um, I think it's a good thing in relation to childbearing. So I think that if you don't have children or you don't want to have children, I don't think marriage has an obvious purpose. Um, it might be... Um, it might be good on an individual level in terms of sort of encouraging um, encouraging people to stick together through the rough and the smooth in some circumstances. You know, people can have, can have um, like, personal benefit from it in that sense. But I think that the, the, the circumstances in which it makes sense are um, recognising the, the profound vulnerability of mother and, the mother-infant dyad um when you're really heavily pregnant and you have or when you have a baby you just can't participate in public life or in the labor market in the way that you you could otherwise um and that start and and that continues for a very long time through childhood and you know in reality the the biological bond between mother and baby is very very intense women are very reluctant to um to be separated from their newborns like the the it's it's not really you, i don't think you can really um understand mothers as individuals in that sense you definitely can't understand babies as individuals because they can't survive without the devoted care of at least one adult um so if you if you're you know if you're thinking of if you're thinking of 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 mother of, of society as sort of within the liberal framework as a bunch of individuals with um autonomous desires and so on or just kind of bumping into each other occasionally <laughs> um you can't you can't fit motherhood into that system um and the 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 reasoning behind marriage from my perspective, I mean, you know, stripping away all of the big white wedding kind of paraphernalia, that what it means in the end is basically a legal bond between parents and children. And the benefit to women of that 
is that it provides a a guarantee of support during those periods when you cannot otherwise support yourself. And there have been, you know, this is like a fundamental problem that that people have tried to reckon with in various ways. Um, There have clearly been other systems of marriage, aside from monogamous marriage, um, overwhelmingly polygynous marriage. So actually about 80% of societies on the anthropological record seem to have been polygynous in that you had high-status men taking on multiple wives and low-status men having no wives. Polyandrous systems where, where women have multiple husbands are almost unheard of. Um, so, you know, the norm is polygynous, um, which is much worse in all sorts of ways, particularly for women than monogamous marriages, polygynous societies have higher rates of child abuse, higher rates of domestic violence, higher rates of crime, um, are generally much more unstable. There are all sorts of, there are all sorts of ways in which those societies fare worse than monogamous societies. And there have been various experiments with kind of experimental modes of of child rearing, like uh, communes, um, which invariably don't last very long and often are not nearly as idyllic as they are initially presented as being. Um, it's never it's never proved to be a durable system to to have that kind of commune where people are not related to each other in that sense. Um, the only other option remaining, which is, you know, now generally the alternative to the, to the monogamous marriage system is women being dependent on the state, um, you know, in a very kind of, um, in a detached way. So I, I describe the state as the, as, as the backup husband, potentially, you know, the state will, particularly in, in periods of abundance, which we have experienced until recently, although that may not last much longer, the state can provide housing, the state can provide um, food and the bare necessities of life, and the state can protect you from violence, you know, to some extent. But the state doesn't do any of those things very well, and it doesn't do it very reliably, and it doesn't provide any love, companionship, any real practical help it's like a very um cold and anonymized means of support for mothers and children and it also demands that mothers and children be separated right like the only the only way that it can work is to have universal daycare as early as possible you know return women to the labor market as quickly as possible while you have children cared for in the most efficient way possible by a rotating cast of paid, often very low-paid women, um, who are, you know can't possibly form the kind of close attachment that that infants crave, and and actually it's you know often very like it's it's so so common for women to go. I, I personally went through the experience of sort of um, feeling fine in theory about that kind of set up until you actually experience the overwhelming love you you have for your baby and you're horrified at the idea of you know handing over a tiny tiny baby to to a daycare institution so that you can get back to work that's that that's you know that's the basis of the status backup husband system and actually i think you know i guess we could dream up alternative utopian arrangements people have clearly tried that at various points um None of these utopian systems have ever actually proved workable. 
the only system that we found so far that does actually seem to do a good job, you know, admittedly fallibly, of protecting mothers and infants is the monogamous marriage system. So I think if we're choosing from a set of actually plausible options, not fantasizing about alternatives or just rejecting motherhood altogether, which is also very often a um, a strain of feminist thought, like there's a very strong anti-natalist thread through a lot of second wave thinking, you know, which is fine like on a personal level if that's what you want to do, but like that can't be the solution. Like if if that were if that were to scale, if we were actually to succeed in that endeavor, like the human race would be gone within 100 years and in practical terms most women are going to have children most women want to have children most women are also straight they want to have relationships with men it's very difficult to persuade them otherwise i mean like political lesbianism is very internally it's like a very internally coherent idea it's a very interesting idea but it's proved absolutely disastrous in terms of its actual sort of persuasive power women women are into it so i say okay like if if, if, this, if the reality is that we've got most women want to be having children with men and the utopian schemes have not worked out what we actually have left available to us is the tool that can encourage um encourage men to stick around form a stable basis for childbearing it's monogamous marriage <laughs> so you know i've arrived at this after after much uh, uh much pessimism much life experience but I think that the the feminist case for marriage is really sound. Yeah, I mean, and as you say, political lesbian lesbianism is sort of a nice theory or ideology in terms of getting away from dependence on men or male violence. But at the end of the day, the vast, vast majority of women in the world are heterosexual, are mm-hmm. going to want to have sex with men, to partner with men, to have children with men and so on and so forth. And so we need to deal with that reality rather than a utopia, as it were. Exactly, Um, yeah. I think you wrote something along the lines of the the problem with liberal feminism is that it's too attached to um, liberation and that the problem with radical feminism is that it's too attached to utopianism. Is that, am I Mm. getting that right-ish? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, utopian thinking is very interesting, but I think the problem is when you end up actually, like, our 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 actual choice is between models that have actually existed, you know, because I think that if a model has never existed, that probably suggests that it's, it's because it can't. Mm-hmm. I... I know we're doing a lot of criticizing of feminism, which is, you know, Mm. I've always done that despite having been a feminist for my entire life. I spend so much time criticizing feminism. (laughs) (laughs) But I wonder if there were any feminists who inspired you, who inspired your your analysis and your work to this regard. Oh, I mean, I look at quite Andrea Dworkin several times. Um, Dworkin, I have a, a Dworkin quote is like my penultimate sentence in the book. Um, because even if I have ended up departing from her on some points, like she's, you know, one, uh, truly one of the most phenomenal writers of, of the 20th century, and two, um, I just am so admire her, her don't give a fuckness, 
<laughs> the fact that she was just such a fresh thinker. Um, I was so despised for it. Mm-hmm. Is I think is I think very very impressive. I mean, I, I'm you know I'm I'm um, I did a degree in women's studies, and my I'm I'm really really indebted to second wave writers in particular, um, and to earlier writers. One of the epigraphs I chose was from Mary Wollstonecraft because mm-hmm. of course she's operating in a world without birth control, <clears throat> and also in a world where she was personally very um, stigmatized for her own sexual life and and so on and, and, and died as a consequence of childbearing. Um, but she also recognized the fact in the Vindication of the Rights of Women that um, male sexual restraint was absolutely essential to female flourishing. And that this whole idea of... Um, trying to erase the differences between men and women and seeing male sexuality as some sort of aspirational thing for women is just absurd, you know, in a, in, a, in a world without birth control. And I think that, you know, yes, we do have birth control. It's fallible. I think that it, it, it just isn't, it isn't capable of actually levelling the playing field between men and women. It couldn't possibly be. And so we have to sort of, we can't just deny the differences and hope they'll go away. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I, I found your book really interesting and engaging, and I think that you make super important points. So um, I appreciate your writing it, and I really appreciate your time. Um, for those listening, again, uh, Louise's book is called The Case Against the Sexual Revolution. Um, and... Yeah, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you so much, Megan. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. Bye. I'm Megan Murphy. Thanks for tuning in to Feminist Current. To learn more about Louise Perry's work, visit www.louisemperry.co.uk. You can find us online at feministcurrent.com. Tweet at us at Feminist Current or send us an email at info at feministcurrent.com. We are hosted by Libsyn and you can subscribe to the Feminist Current podcast anywhere you like to listen. iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, TuneIn, Spotify, and beyond. You can even give us five stars and a review on iTunes. Feminist Current is produced and hosted by myself, Megan Murphy. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider making a donation to support our work. Just visit feministcurrent.com and click the donate button.